Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today I am with Dr. Christopher Barden, a psychologist and attorney. Uh, Christopher, thanks, thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jake. What a pleasure. Uh, so to start, can you just give us a brief history okay. of your story? And your job is pretty complex. Can you tell us exactly what you do? Well, there are multiple parts to my job. It is kind of a kind of an interesting history, really. So as you mentioned, I'm a psychologist, and I've been licensed as a psychologist uh, since the 1980s, really. And, and I'm a lawyer. I've been licensed as an attorney since the 1990s and have worked in those two capacities in most states, certainly over 40 states at this point, I think. And then I'm, uh, I also have a, a history as a scientist, and I've done public policy work. I've written legislation. Uh, I've been a government official. And, and so there's really kind of a complex mixture of things, but they, they, they do seem to work uh, together pretty well. Hmm. And they've, so they've intertwined <clears throat> well to, to give you a solid career. Uh, so I'm curious, <clears throat> it seems that it all started with psychology. What originally sparked your interest in, in psychology? So I, I grew up on uh, the East Coast, was born in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, grew up there, uh, moving to Minnesota in seventh grade. We lived for a few years on the East Coast in a small town named Salisbury, Maryland, which is near Ocean City. It's kind of a nice, uh, fun place to be in the summer. It's a famous town in the history of one sport, and that is uh, professional tennis. Oh, cool. Because there was a gentleman there named William Reardon, and Bill Reardon uh, was one of the founders of uh, the professional tennis tour. <clears throat> he, was, he, he was a businessman. He got very interested in tennis, and he did something quite unusual. He moved the National Indoor Tennis Championships from Madison Square Garden, New York City, to the small town in Maryland. Huh. And, and the, the fact that he was able to pull that off was amazing. So as a young lad, I met Arthur Ashe and Dennis Ralston and all these world famous, Chuck McKinley, all these world famous tennis players. That's pretty cool. And had a chance to watch them play and so got very motivated to play tennis. And that really got me started in sports, which was the, 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 the foundational interest I had in psychology, which was hmm. uh, performance psychology. Oh, interesting. Uh, and, and I still, you know, I've, I've taught uh, Olympic athletes, NBA All-Stars, Navy fighter pilots, and spoken at the Beijing Olympics because uh, I met Bill Reardon and uh, got interested in, 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 in playing tennis. So we moved <clears throat> from the East Coast to Minnesota. I uh, started uh, at a high school here, um, Edina High School, Play, and I played a lot of tennis. I played maybe 14 hours a day in wow. the summers traveling from city to city with my friends and uh, really it was a an excellent chance to learn how to deal with pressure we often had large crowds at our matches and the media we were often in the media kind of local media so there was all of that life on the road uh, teamwork i played doubles with a number of uh, friends and so that was really my interest, my, my beginning interest in psychology was kind of 
how do you, how do you focus your mind? How do you control anxiety when you're playing a tight match in front of hundreds of people? Um, and and those kinds of, of of factors. That's interesting. Yeah, I love <clears throat> tennis myself as well, uh, and I definitely felt like that was something that I did well in tennis was to be able to stay focused and compose when it was a tight match, and that was mainly due to my experience in other intense sports like basketball and football. Uh, but I love that. So when it comes to performance psychology, then what are some of the main tenets that can be practiced or worked on to really utilize performance? Well, uh, we can really focus on that. Let me get through a little more of the history. Okay. okay which will cool. kind of show how all this fits together. Absolutely. And then we can talk about uh, specifically if you want to do a uh, a segment on on sports psychology or what we do when we train um, NBA all stars or Navy fighter pilots, etc. Uh, et Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So, okay. what's next in the history of, of Christopher Barden? Well, the so uh, I really wasn't that interested in academic things, uh -huh. although I was reading a lot of very unusual stuff. As it, I started reading all the news and news magazines. And things like that when I was in about third or fourth grade. I remember when, when we moved from, uh, from uh, Virginia to Minnesota, so this would be the summer after my sixth grade, uh, my parents said, well, it's a long drive, you know, you, 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 should, you should get a book for the, for the drive. So I have the book upstairs. It's got my little sixth grade signature in the That's cover. That's awesome. So it's the thousand-plus-page uh, book, uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, by William Shear. Hmm. So I was reading pretty unusual stuff <laughs> at that time, but really wasn't that interested in school because I was interested in tennis. It was all about sports. Yeah. And so that changed in my senior year. got very interested in academic pursuits because I could take things like psychology and sociology and some other uh, physics and some other interesting things and I had some interesting experiences that were different so my teachers uh, one of my teachers pulled me aside and said you know I'm gonna let you go to the library for a few weeks and read what you want and then come back and teach the class hmm. so that that was unusual so I, I started getting experience doing academic things that were very helpful so <clears throat> very fortunate to live in Minnesota which has one of the finest psychology departments in the world. I mean, if you get on US News and World Report and look up graduate school and developmental psychology, which is child psychology and whatnot, uh -huh. uh, I think you'll see Minnesota still number one Wow. Uh, worldwide. So very good school. It was right down the road. I could take the bus. Yeah. And I think it costs $600 a quarter not bad. In Not bad days. compared to now, right? Yes. And you could take as many credits as you wanted for the 600 bucks. So I took 68 credits my first year, How my bad. first three quarters, and finished in three years and had a, a great experience getting to meet some world-famous psychologists and do a lot of research and all of that worked out uh, well. Um, uh, so then I went to Berkeley for a while and they had a very chaotic psychology department. I got to meet some fascinating people, Margaret Singer and James Coyne and other people. And then I came back to Minnesota <clears throat> and worked with a gentleman named Norman Garmisey. 
Norman Garmisee. So Norman Garmisee is a very interesting guy in the history of psychology. So psychology for most of the last century uh, really kind of uh, went off on a tangent. Uh, hmm. Sigmund Freud, who we used to refer to as Sigmund Freud, but that's that's a, a whole another uh, <laughs> a whole another discussion. So uh, people studied individuals suffering from terrible troubles, psychopathology, okay. mentally ill people. And Norman Garmin's uh, Norman Garmisey said, "Wouldn't it be interesting to study people who grow up under tremendous stress and pressure?" But they do just fine. Huh. So these were invulnerable children or uh, coping and resilient people. Does this make sense? Interesting, yeah. It's a very different perspective. Then the Sigmund Freud sort of study the people that are suffering. Exactly. And, and aren't as resilient or overcoming some of those problems as well. Yes, okay. exactly. And so he was one of the real founders of that movement, which has become quite quite prominent I mean um, we study people who are in war who come back and they have these horrible experiences and they suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome and other difficulties but but the vast majority of people don't yeah uh, In interesting what a percentage wise how many well we don't really want to get into all the numbers it varies tremendously and there's all different kinds of reactions to stress but the vast majority of people do not suffer from PTSD. That's interesting from to those hear. Kinds of, uh, those kinds of experiences. In fact, many people get better and stronger through those kinds of difficult experiences called post-traumatic strengthening. Huh, that's which, assuring to hear. Which is the more common reaction. So one of the great things uh, about uh, the, the multi Multidisciplinary is a word I use a lot. It's multi-professions. So I work as a psychologist and a lawyer and a scientist and a public policy analyst and a legislative writer. And, uh, and in the legal world, I do trial law and I do consulting and I testify as an expert. So looking at things from all of these different perspectives is very, very helpful. Absolutely. Sounds like it's... And so... Uh, Using this, uh, this perspective from, from Norman Garmisee, I've really been studying how people cope with stress for many years. Hmm. So, uh, so after Berkeley, back to Minnesota. Which had to be a, a great transition. Yeah, well, it was fascinating because I got to go to these two world-famous psychology departments and get training at both and have friends at both and mentors at both. Then I did my internship at the Palo Alto uh, Veterans Administration Hospital and the Stanford Medical School, they have a joint program there. And that okay. was really a, 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 a very significant part of my experience. Very stressful, very difficult, listening to horrific stories of, of trauma and stress for that year. Um, but also finding out you know, ways to cope with stress myself, personally. So for mm -hmm. example, during the Stanford year, I would work out three hours a day. Not bad. I ran an hour in the morning. I swam at lunch for an hour, which you can do outdoors in February in Palo Alto. That sounds amazing. <laughs> it was, yeah, you know, for a kid from Minnesota, that was something. So, and then in the evening, I would jump rope and watch television news. So, and that was one of your ways <clears throat> with coping with stress? Yes, one of the most effective ways to cope with stress 
is to is massive exercise and, and that's been scientifically proven oh yeah in, in a lot of ways right and sure. sort of physiologically is that because of the dopamine that's released in your brain well uh i don't want to get into a lot of technical things that'll bore your listeners but <laughs> but 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 by and large uh, one way that helps people to think about this uh-huh and physiologically, we could get into a lot of details, but I'm just going to tell you a way to think about it that a lot of people find very helpful. Yeah. So when, when you're under a lot of stress, your body produces chemicals okay. uh, that, that help you to, to, to fight or flight, right? To run away or fight. If you're, a, if you're being chased by a tiger and your life is on the line, you better get out of there take off and and if the tiger hits you your blood had better clot quickly and all of these physiological changes that are designed to help you survive right Mm -hmm. but that's not very helpful if you're stuck in traffic and you're and you're angering yourself about the silly things your boss does at work or you're worried about your grades or whatever things you're worried about in the modern world but your body is still producing these stress chemicals which are floating around in your body causing trouble, right? You really don't want heightened blood clotting uh, to be the, the standard response of your body for weeks and weeks and weeks of stress. So when you exercise massively, I'm not talking about walking around the block, I'm talking about sweating, intense exercise. Um, think about that as burning up those stress chemicals. <clears throat> and many people will tell you that that's what it feels like. Huh. So that's what now. Now, I've also worked with people who are quadriplegics who can't do that. And then there are, there are other ways to deal with stress that are cognitive, they're philosophical. The most powerful way to deal with it uh, actually is by faith and by conversion and by serving other people. But we can get to that later. Interesting. So there's many different ways and aspects that you can deal with stress, you can cope, you can be resilient, and you can function even in the most difficult of settings and circumstances. So finishing up at Palo Alto, I also was uh, the first psychology intern in the Minnesota Maximum Security Prison one summer. Wow. That was quite an experience. I can't imagine. So I had to go through a number of doors with the big iron gate. And then you're locked in the middle of two gates. And then the other gate opens and the giant keys and the locks. And then I had to sign a form that if I was taken hostage, I understood they would not negotiate for my release. It was a very intense summer. And I ran a group for these horribly violent and difficult and troubled people. So again, just learning stress, difficult environments, how people cope, or with the people in prison, how people failed to cope with stress. Um, So after that, I began teaching in a couple of medical schools and working with some internationally famous surgeons who uh, rebuild uh, children who uh, have terrible birth defects or they're injured in, in explosions or a variety of other things. So trying to help families and children cope with complicated medical stress was kind of the next thing that I studied. What types of surgeons were these? Uh, well, the, uh, most of the research we were doing, was it, it's a craniofacial surgery. Okay. So literally rebuilding someone's entire face using... Wow 
bone parts from their hips and their ribs to build uh, cheekbones and a nose. And it's really quite something. Again, this would take hours to get into the details, but it's a very dramatic series of procedures. Some of these kids, uh, some of our patients had 15 or 18 major surgeries before they were out of high school. Wow. And they went from being massively deformed to the point where people would gasp if they saw them in public to being quite, a, quite attractive. Huh. And so we were studying the psychological changes that that, that that brought and how some families coped very well with that and how other families really struggled and uh, were uh, destroyed by the, by the stress of that. So I did that for a few years um, and was uh, very fortunate. Um, boy, there's so many parts of the history that might be interesting, but I think our time is limited. So let me just, let me just leap forward. So, so I ended up working at uh, the University of Utah in the psychology department and the medical school and the primary children's hospital working with these patients. Um, and with a world famous surgeon there. And that was a very interesting uh, time. Um, surgeons have wonderful uh, medical meetings. So I was able to give speeches at Santiago, Chile and, uh, and Monaco and, and near France and uh, uh, India, New Delhi. So just uh, a great couple of years traveling and, and doing this research and publishing it in medical journals, child psychology journals, child clinical psychology journals, surgical journals, et cetera, et cetera. Again, the multi-profession, multidisciplinary uh, way to look at these problems. And I was very fortunate in uh, 1987, um, I got, well, okay. I'm going to go ahead and mention this anyway. We don't get too sidetracked. Absolutely. Um, so I, I was leaving Texas. I taught at SMU for a few years. And I was, uh, uh, the, the psychology department at Yale uh, voted to hire me. And the dean said, you can't hire this kind of person. You have to, hire, you have to be more diverse. And so A white I, male. <laughs> well, so I ended up, and, and they actually almost got in litigation. They were faced off for like three months. Wow. And so my, my second choice though was willing to wait until they worked that out and to figure out what would happen. And so I ended up moving to Utah, uh, which worked out really well because I met this young woman running at the track and that's my wife. And uh, yeah. Beautiful timing. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very lovely uh, experience living in Utah too. Um, and that's where I, I had been studying coping and resilience for years. And it turns out the best, most effective way to cope with stress is through your faith. And that's been true for centuries and people have known that for centuries, but the field of psychology really doesn't like that finding. And so anyway, but that, how do you integrate faith with, with psychology? Because you said you just said it yeah. works the best, but the right. field of psychology hasn't always worked that in as well. How how do you integrate that to make them work together? Well, that's that's been one of the great things about. Uh, so uh, I met my wife, 
and I had been studying world religions for 10 years. I'd been uh, on these various trips to give speeches around the world. I'd been studying world religions and how people cope using faith. I'd been to the Tangboche Buddhist Monastery near Mount Everest in the Himalayas, where I spent a very lovely couple of weeks. Um, I'd been to Rome. I'd read everything from the Tibetan Book of the Dead to, uh, to, to ancient documents, early Coptic Christian documents, and had really done quite a study, really, of, of various faiths around the world and how they helped people to cope with stress. Uh, and that's where I really found out about uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, studied intensively for several months, uh, joined, became a member. Now, as a member of the church, you serve in what's, uh, what's known as a calling. And so I've had th this great uh, joy and, and, uh, and privilege to serve in, as a branch president and a bishop, and again as a branch president with interesting groups of people. So my, the, my first experience was as a branch president in the 90s in Minneapolis in the Laotian branch. <clears throat> These are some of the most amazing coping people that I'd ever met. Hmm. They're survivors of the Cambodian and Laotian communist concentration camps. Such a heart-wrenching Some of the ordeal. most extraordinary stories you could ever imagine. And uh, many of these people were simply able to cope with levels of stress and difficulty such that uh, it's hard for most people to even comprehend. Um, but they taught me quite a bit about that. Uh, again, the, the most profound thing for them was their faith and, uh, and their, their ability to utilize their very effective habits that they'd learned over many years. And to get back to your sporting question yeah. and to link it into the coping question, yeah. essentially people learn habits and they either learn effective coping resilient habits or they can learn habits that are destructive. And some of these are pretty obvious. So we talked about uh, massive exercise. People either have excellent exercise habits or they don't. Now I've seen people change. We had a patient at Stanford, Palo Alto VA, for example, who uh, weighed a little over 300 pounds and his health was deteriorating. He had developed severe diabetes and we just couldn't motivate him to work out, to change his diet, etc. The thing that transformed him was he was told that he would be blind within a year if he kept on this path. And that, losing his vision and some other spiritual aspects, which we don't have time to get into, he became motivated and there was a parkour, which is kind of a little trail around the entire hospital complex at Palo Alto. Okay. And they had places where you would stop and do sit-ups or pull-ups or you'd do various kinds of exercises as you made your way around the entire, and there's a lot of buildings there. It's not just a hospital. It's more like a small college. And so he began on this parkour. So I went with him a few times and uh, he had to change his thinking habits from I can't do this to this is very important. I can do this. I enjoy this. This feels great. Anyway, slowly over a period of months, he began to lose weight and get fitter. By the end of the year, 
he had lost uh, about half of his weight. And it, uh, the, when I left, he was preparing to run a marathon and his health was restored. So people can make dramatic changes in their habits if they're motivated. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, there's a famous philosopher who said, you know, love changes people's behavior more powerfully than anything else. And that's uh, a great quote. Yeah, it's, and it's, 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 it's very true. So, um, <clears throat> well, along those lines, uh, there's a, oh, I forget his name, but I was listening to a podcast. He was on the Sam Harris podcast where he talked about the problem of depression. Uh-huh. And he he does he's not against antidepressants by any means, but he he had experienced antidepressants and said he just had to keep taking them over and over again. Yeah. And he said, "Why is this happening to me?" And he, from all of his research, has concluded that as humans we have underlying physiological needs, just like we have physical needs, right? Mm-hmm. And not just the chemical <coughs> imbalance of of the brain is what is important when it comes to depression, but also those physiological needs. Am I valued? Do, do people care about me? Do I have purpose? And he said when we're able to meet those physiological needs that we're better able to solve the, the problem of depression. Yes. Uh, so I liked, I, liked, I liked that aspect. So you're into a whole other topic now, which would be another... Yeah, just a little side podcast. note. Just a so, little side note. Yeah, so uh, we're in the midst of uh, of a tsunami of anxiety and depression. There's a lot of theories about why that is. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it's not genetic. Our genes haven't changed that radically. It is true people are much less physically fit than they used to be. I mean, if you worked on a farm all day, you got your workout in. People used to have jobs, and, and their daily routine was very much more physical. We sit much longer. We drive in a car. We just don't get the kind of exercise that we used to. So that's one of the big changes that may be damaging people's physical and emotional and psychological health. Uh, some of the most important institutions that help people to cope, which are their family, their, their, uh, their family and their church relationships, and their social organizational relationships, those have been damaged. They're very, they are, they are declining. People are much more isolated than they used to be. That's another factor that people are looking at. Then there's the influence of, of screens and people living in this two-dimensional internet world. We could talk about that for a long time. That's another factor. <laughs> then we have drugs and alcohol and opium and <clears throat> marijuana and all kinds of other things that <clears throat> that are uh, typically damaging ways to cope with stress. If people misuse and abuse those, that can harm their psychological and emotional health. And then we have this uh, great controversy about uh, psychiatric medications. And that is a very controversial subject. We could spend the rest of the week on that, <laughs> much less this podcast. <clears throat> I would just uh, indicate to people that <clears throat> clearly medications help some people. They appear to be like a placebo for most people, and they are very damaging to other people. And we do a very poor job of predicting what's going to happen people when they start taking these meds. Okay. There's a book out called uh, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, who's an award-winning journalist. 
I mean, if people want to get just a little touch of what the controversy looks like, they could read that book. I do think, though, that <clears throat> it's clear, and I've seen, that there are many ways to deal with anxiety and depression. And uh, it would probably be wise to use uh, the, the <clears throat> to use the healthy <clears throat> and historically validated methods before going to the meds. Some people might need meds right away. Some people might need to be locked up in a hospital. But for most people that we call the walking worried, uh, uh, massive exercise, running, biking, swimming, classes, whatever you want to do, martial arts, tennis, uh, something that really makes you sweat and uh, burn up your stress chemicals can be extremely helpful. Uh, learning to control your thinking, to monitor your thinking. There's a book called Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy by David Burns, who's a professor at Stanford uh, Medical School. Feeling Good has sold millions of copies. It's actually been subjected to uh, scientific study and has been shown to be a very effective treatment for depression. It's a book. Hmm. Wow. People can read this book in a couple of days. It's written for high school level. I've probably given out 400 copies of this book and I use it in my counseling, church counseling and other uh, ways that I that I uh, deal with people. So it's, from reading the book alone, people have been able to yes feel less depressed. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the studies I looked at, seventy percent of people were essentially uh, treated very effectively in a couple of months by reading and working through a simple book. That's extraordinary. So you've got exercise. You have this book, which teaches the skills of what's called cognitive behavior therapy which is one of the few scientifically validated treatments for anxiety and depression. I mean, there are all kinds of schools of psychology. There have been for many, many decades. Uh -huh. and, and some of them are quite dangerous, and many of them are quite not effective. And cognitive behavior therapy and just a few others have been validated to be useful and effective. So if you're doing exercise, if you're reading Feeling Good, and you're doing cognitive behavior uh, charts and graphs and working on the way in which your mind can control your levels of stress if you're doing those two things if you're eating a healthy diet this is another problem we have in our modern world people's diets are are dramatically uh, less healthy than they were a century ago um, and then you've got the whole faith religion conversion belief system and then you have the whole social connection and and being around people who support you and you feel connected to and then you have this spending more time serving other people than thinking about yourself so there's, there's a whole set of skills and habits that we're talking about here that can be very effective in dealing with emotional problems before you ever get to the question of whether or not you want to take drugs. Does that make sense? Yeah. Interesting, <clears throat> Interesting debate there, yeah. So many people go in and the first step, the very first thing they do is they get on these drugs. So I think there are a number of books out there talking about this and the controversies. But, but clearly, if people will change their habits, try that first, 
And again, some people need emergency help right away. I'm not telling people to avoid uh, medical treatment. I would never do that. But I think for most of us, if we monitor our habits and we're, uh, and we're trying to learn those effective coping and resilient skills, uh, our lives can be dramatically healthier uh, and our ability to serve other people and serve our communities and, and, and raise healthy families, all of that is enhanced. And, and that's the <clears throat> fundamental base of, of your studies leading up to, to your career was, was how to cope with stress and then changing your habits, right? That was one of the main tenets. Well, it all fits. Uh-huh. It all fit, and it fits with sports psychology. So when I would, when I would work with uh, NBA All-Stars or Navy fighter pilots, you're trying to teach them coping skills because they deal with high stress, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the people I worked with in the NBA had to go in the NBA finals and play against uh, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, and it was stressful. So we worked on relaxation training, we worked on mental practice, mental rehearsal, and we worked on um, how to control negative thinking. You know, I can't do this, this isn't working for me, I'm being embarrassed in front of hundreds of millions of people, you know, trying to eliminate that kind of thinking and like focus on the present, just visually uh, rehearse effective procedures that have worked before when playing against this person, and then reach that optimal level of, you know, not too anxious, but not bored. Uh, there's, a, there's a maximal level of, uh, of anxiety where you're pumped up and you're excited, but you're not afraid. So working on controlling all of those things, same thing with the Navy fighter pilots, same thing with the, with the Olympic athletes, the same thing I talked about in an invited address at West Point, the same thing I talked about in an invited address at the Beijing Olympics. So these things work. Yeah. <clears throat> Sports psychology is great because you get feedback immediately. Sort of that instant feedback. Yeah. I'm intrigued by the turnout of this uh, professional, professional player with the preparation for the really good player. Did it? Well, yeah. Did it work out as as well? Yeah, worked worked very well. I'm, you know, so I worked with a nationally prominent uh, uh, college basketball player, and uh, who who wanted to get drafted, right? And the big problem he had was his free throw shooting percentage was too low. <laughs> so we 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 worked on that. We worked on motivation to practice. We worked on visual practice. We worked on you know, if you visually practice in your mind for some aspects of some sports, it's as effective as actually doing it. Huh. So when people are injured, for example, they can keep practicing in their mind. So because they're just going <clears> over <throat> everything. Yeah, the U.S. ski team, for example, if you injure your knee, they'll have you visually practice running the course. Fascinating, in, but but not just in a lackadaisical way. In incredible detail, feeling the wind and hearing the noise and feeling your muscles and incredible detail. So, the, <clears throat> um, boy, there's so many different aspects to that. Absolutely, that yeah. might be interesting to your audience, but I don't know if we have time to to, to get into that. So, where are we now? So we're back to. <clears throat> I'm at Utah. We're working in the medical school. And to summarize, so leading up to this point, you've had so many different um, experiences, sort of, I guess, like hands-on experience work or, or studies relating to coping coping with and, and being resilient to stress. 
Right. Which has led up to you being able to have a different perspective in a lot of different areas. Are we on the right track there? Right. Wonderful. Trying to take a multi-professional, multi-profession perspective on things. This is one of the problems with our education system. We train people in silos of information. I mean, think of a farm silo. It's just this is full of wheat. This one silo is full of corn, right? But problems in the real world don't happen that way. Yeah, they're they, they a are, mix of wheat and corn and barley they, and every. They're very, they're very complex. Every crop. So and and I really learned to appreciate multidisciplinary uh, work on these surgical teams where you have a radiologist, you have a pharmacist, you have a nursing specialist, you have a surgeon, you have. Uh, th- uh, uh, computer software experts working on the imagery. You have insurance experts. I'm the psychologist trying to trying to help the team to communicate with patients effectively and teaching them coping and resilience skills. And that's that's the way NASA sends off rockets. You know that, that you have a bunch of specialists that work together as a team, right? Mm-hmm. There are some occupations like mental health professionals and the legal profession that do not do this very well. <clears throat> so speaking of the legal profession, so the next thing I did, I was very fortunate. My research uh, uh, um, won a National Science Award, which is a, a great thing. It's a, uh, it goes to maybe one child psychologist a year in the United States. And it gives you five years to kind of do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. And I had become interested in public policy for a number of reasons. That's another podcast. <laughs> Real but, quick, <clears throat> what was that research that you won the award for? Uh, the coping and resilience research. Okay, so with children and families. Yeah, okay. exactly. They wanted me to continue to do that and expand it, etc. I love it. So I had become interested in healthcare policy uh, and you know, how hospitals are set up and how healthcare works, because I'd, I'd seen these problems on our multidisciplinary teams uh, with getting funding for the kind of care and for uh, other things that these families were, were, were needing, etc. <clears throat> so uh, there's a very spiritual aspect to this I won't have time to get into today. Uh, I was on a job interview um, uh, and the job interview was at Harvard University, which is a great thing. You don't get interviewed at Harvard every day. I'd never been there before. I was walking through the uh, Harvard Yard and enjoying my evening before I had this excruciating interview with the entire faculty of psychology and giving a speech to the entire faculty and all the grad students for several hours and then having them question you intensely. It's a very, it's a very intense experience. So I was just walking it off relaxing, using my coping and resilience skills. Sounds like your performance <clears throat> psychology background helped you with that. <laughs> that, that was very helpful. So, um, and I also walked over to William James Hall to make sure I knew how to get there and, you know, the, the next day and everything. And so uh, that's very close to another set of buildings. Uh, uh, Harvard Law School is right over there. <clears throat> Everyone's very familiar with Harvard Law School from movies and books and etc. So during those days, before 9-11, before the fear of terrorism, you could just walk in off the street. And I walked into the law school library, which is in a really quite an amazing place. I highly recommend it. Of course, you have to have a 
have to have an ID and everything to get in there now. But mm -hmm. so I just was sitting in the chair and I had a very spiritual epiphany that um, that the work that I did would be much more effective if I came there and learned another professional set of skills and perspective. Anyway, within a, within a short period of time, I was at Harvard Law School. And again, we could spend an entire <laughs> wow. uh, a long time about the experiences there. It was a very interesting time to be there. Uh, there were a lot of uh, very interesting conservative people like Neil Gorsuch, who's on the Supreme Court now. There were very liberal people like Barack Obama, who went on and had a, a kind of a, a, a successful career in politics. Uh, uh, anyway, so there were all these interesting people there. <clears throat> and some of the interesting people that I work with there uh, convinced me that I could do a lot of good in the legal system helping to eliminate junk science, hmm. negative science, bad science. Tell us, tell us about these negative sciences, these junk sciences. Well, uh, wow, that's that, that's uh, that's another week. So again, lawyers, <laughs> lawyers are not trained in scientific thinking. They don't understand scientific methodology in general. There are exceptions. Uh huh. They don't understand mathematics very well, and uh, the methodology is the most important thing about science. How you test things, whether it's reliable, whether it's valid. And lawyers simply do not receive that training. Uh, I, I, I have a recent case with a, a very well-known known lawyer, Alan Dershowitz, and he and I agree that it's time for lawyers to learn science. Because <clears throat> a lot of what you do in the courtroom is based on science, or good science or bad science. Based on data and, and yes. studies relating to how they should yes. decide a case, right? Correct. Uh, I'll give you a very specific example, a family law case. The judge has to decide who gets the kids, mom or dad, how much time they spend with the kids. Uh, that can be complicated. It can be very complicated if improper <coughs> junk science testimony gets involved. So let's say, for example, there's a therapist who's poorly trained using unscientific techniques. I've seen cases where therapists base their opinion on who should see their children based on doll playing. Wow, if I that, would not want my... <laughs> if that sounds medieval, that's because it is. Wow. But a judge listened to that, and a parent and lawyers listened to that, because of the appeal and of parent, authority? And a parent the... didn't. Well, the, you know, they're just lawyers. They don't know anything about competent science. They assume that mental health professionals are licensed and they're part of the healthcare system, therefore they're reliable. And that's a terrible assumption. Mm -hmm. The mental health system is radically less reliable than much of the healthcare system. But they don't know that. Hmm. So in that case, a parent did not see their child for a year because this therapist issued this remarkably irrational opinion based on watching children play with dolls, which is not a reliable procedure. I, yeah, at, okay. at, first, at first glance, that would make sense. That... So I could spend hours just detailing all of the junk science information that I see in the courtroom. And as an expert witness, I'm able to explain to judges the history 
of science and how it works and the methodology that's important. I've given invited addresses at Harvard and, uh, and at Oxford uh, Press um, in, in, in London and taught groups of judges and lawyers and done continuing professional education in dozens of states, training thousands of psychologists and lawyers on how to think like a scientist and avoid junk science. So what, what the reason I went to law school has actually happened. And there's, there's quite a bit more history to that as well, but our time is very limited now. <laughs> so let's see what we want to do to kind of, uh, let, me, let me just focus on um, to, go, to go back to the habits that I think that your listeners would, would be uh, captivated by. Well, they would be. They would be. Uh, they would find it useful. Uh -huh. Useful information. <clears throat> so again, these habits, coping and resilience habits, are quite powerful. Um, one habit, for example, that's very effective is gratitude. And you hear people, uh, religious leaders, often talk about this. You'll hear them say it's important to develop the attitude of gratitude, and that is so true. Um, almost anything that happens to you can be perceived as uh, a terrible thing or a blessing, depending on how you look at it. So for example, one of my good friends at, uh, in the Laotian branch had been captured by the communists in the Laotian Cambodian uh, uh, communist takeovers. And, and in Cambodia, as you may know, a huge percentage, a quarter to a third of all the people were murdered by the communist leaders of that country, Pol Pot and his followers. They were especially interested in re-educating, which meant torturing and indoctrinating and threatening uh, people that were educated, people who could read and write. And so my friend had been a Buddhist monk. <clears throat> he could read and write. He also knew meditation and he had excellent mind control skills. But so he was chained to the floor in a gymnasium with 300 people for six years and I believe only 20 of them survived. Wow. And so I asked him, you know, how in the world did you survive this horrific experience? This is a person who's happy, well-functioning, uh, happily married, children, very successful. Um, and so he said, well, at first I realized and here it comes. This is a golden rule of coping and resilience. Golden rule. He said, coming. at first I realized there were things I could control and things I could not control. And so I began to focus on the things I could control. Fascinating. Right. So think about how much of your faith is based upon this knowledge, though. And if your belief is that the world is a randomly generated bunch of uh, proto, you know, humans are randomly generated protoplasm, that's not a very hopeful view of the world. And you see people get into a lot of trouble with that view of the world. <clears throat> um, if, on the other hand, you believe that the universe is controlled by an organized, super intelligent, loving God, that's very hopeful. Huh. So that, that even right then is a powerful coping and resilience tool. And so this whole notion of agency 
or what people can control or not control is really a very important part of faith and conversion. It's also a very important part of coping and resilience. So my friend chained to the floor in Laos uh, and people were being beaten to death randomly around him pretty consistently and they were released once a month to shower. It was not, it was a, a, a horrific experience far beyond the experience of virtually anybody you've ever met. So anyway, <clears throat> he said, so I realized I could control my thoughts. So huh. I began to focus on positive memories that he'd had and I looked for things to be grateful for. Okay, so this is the second major golden rule of coping and resilience, but how do you do that in that situation? And I asked him, and I'll never forget his answer. He said, at the end of the gymnasium, we were uh, chained in, there was a window. <clears throat> in many days, a beautiful ray of sunlight would come through the window on the wall across and it was lovely, and for this I was grateful. And he bowed and put his hands together. And I realized at that moment I was sitting in the presence of a world-class gold medal coping and resilience master. Wow, I'm at a loss of words. So, and that leads to another skill that I teach people that I call the, the very, truly very bad day scale. So I was teaching a student, and this will probably be my last story for the podcast, but hopefully this is information that yeah. your listeners can, can use. Yeah. Um, to have faith in a, in, a, in a hopeful universe and to focus on being, finding things to be grateful for rather than complain about and to get some serious exercise uh, once a day or as often as they can and to... Uh, <clears throat> and to and to focus on things they can control and let things they can't control go. <clears throat> so anyway, um, the experience with this friend of mine uh, came back to me. I was teaching a college class and a student came in frazzled and said he couldn't take the final because he'd had such a terrible day. And so being a coping and resilience a person and the class was based upon some of that. We uh, we asked him what happened, and uh, so anyway, he had some fairly typical things that had happened. He'd had a flat tire. He'd lost his job at the mall, whatever. Um, and so he's looking at it from the perspective of a person that has very limited historical experience. Apparently, didn't understand that people were killed in the Colosseum or that you know the Napoleon's army was pretty much wiped out on the road back from Moscow. Just the kinds of horrific experiences that people experience through life for centuries. And he actually believed that he'd had a terrible day. So I wrote on the board the truly very bad day scale, which went from you know, having, uh, having a nice day, reasonably nice day, to having a truly horrifically awful experience, like my friend at Laos, in, in Laos, yeah. or people even worse experiences. You know, I've met people at the VA hospital and people who were in, in the in the Laotian wards who had worse experiences than him. I'm not gonna tell your listeners that because they might be traumatized by the stories. Uh -huh. <clears throat> but if so, if you put this on a scale, 
And some of them were quite famous. So the early Christians, some of them were fed to the lions in the Colosseum after their children were fed to the lions. Most people don't sit and appreciate that those are real experiences. People really had those experiences. They're not going to have those experiences. So I've worked in hospitals and prisons and VA, uh, VA hospitals, and I've worked uh, with medically uh, very fragile and complicatedly ill people, and I've worked with survivors of concentration camps. <clears throat> I've heard a lot of very negative stories. Yeah. And so most people, most people you know, on a one to 10 truly very bad day scale, they've never even had like a four on that scale. I, I haven't mean, if you're, gotten close to <laughs> a four probably. If your dearly beloved grandparent passes away after a long life and you know having a, had the, that's, that's, it's a sad thing. It is not a truly horrible day. Yeah, it's, like... it's not. It's something you expect. It's part of life. It's the gateway to the next world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, if you have a way of thinking about it that 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 helps you cope. Some people deal with cancer. I've worked with a lot of people dealing with terrible illness and pain and and all of that, but nothing like being in Napoleon's army trying to get back from Moscow or being on the Russian front in World War II or uh, I've talk with survivors of the Holocaust in Germany. So you know, just people have been through these horrifying experiences. And yet most of us, thank goodness, live in a safe country. We have a high functioning legal system where we have access to scientifically based medicine and not so scientifically based medicine, mental health care sometimes, uh, which, which I'm trying to reform. But <clears throat> we really don't have very, truly very bad days ever uh -huh. in our whole life. And so we we're trying to teach people a little perspective. Does that make sense? Yeah. Part of reading scripture is to give you that perspective. Give you perspective on, on someone else's life from yes. a long time ago and be able to compare, you know, my problems aren't if, as bad as maybe this or this what happened. Correct. And this gratification is just as great as something they yes if felt. you have if, if you have dysfunction in your family you can see a lot of that in scripture hmm. and they're, frankly their dysfunctions worse than your family yeah you know the cain and abel dysfunctional family story is pretty intense and <laughs> yeah. most people do not have that in their family again uh -huh. it's teaching you perspective yeah when you <clears throat> i feel like so much of our life is you're able like it's relative, right? The experiences we have are relative. When you really like compare them to other things, you're able to better see, okay, I do have a great life or I, things aren't as bad as I, correct. As I'm making them out in my mind. Correct. And that things that are, you think are so bad and you're so upset about may actually be a great benefit to you. And I have so, a number of stories about this. We don't have, time to go into today, but I'll just give you one example. So when Yale, the, the chairman at Yale called me and said, we voted to hire you. And I, you know, I am moving to Yale. It's very exciting. I'm very happy about this. Then he called a couple of weeks later and said, well, the dean says we can't hire you. And so we're thinking about suing him. It was a very interesting conversation. And so I thought, well, this is really not fair and it's unfortunate and, you know, woe is me. Little did I know that that would lead me to moving to Utah, meeting my wife, joining the church, 
having extraordinary experiences working with the Laotian people and serving as a bishop in inner city Minneapolis, which is a whole nother set of these uh, stories that we could go on about for hours. And then being a branch president with the, with the young single adults and learning a whole nother set of, 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 of these experiences. And then going on a job interview at Harvard and ended up going to the law school. And, you know, there it's so, wow, I'm so glad I didn't go to Yale. Hmm, that, yeah. that, that, would, that would not have been, that would not have led me to all of these very unique and unusual experiences that I'm so happy to have a job where I get up every day. I haven't had a boss since 1995. I get up every day. Am I going to do a little psychology today, a little law, a little science, a little of all of it? Am I going to write an article? Am I going to do some legislative work? Every day, it's this kind of flexibility, and that's because I did not go and, and, and take that job and just have a standard academic uh, experience. So the things you think are maybe really troublesome for you, they may be your best friend. Huh, yeah, I think that perspective is really <clears throat> unique because a lot of people can get really down or have, you know, a little mild, you know, feel sad or frustrated, irritated from certain things happening in their life. And to hear from someone else or to hear from multiple other people that from their firsthand experience, hey, I had a similar situation that I felt like I was down and, and not having it my way, but then this, this, and this happened to turn it all around for me. Yes. And so being able to just in the moment use use your mind, direct your thoughts towards positivity and and basically a greater understanding of things going better for the good. Am I getting at that right? Yes. I mean, you know, we are instructed that we, that we uh, as we lose our life serving other people, we actually gain it. We are, we are instructed to be grateful in all things. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we are instructed to be thankful in all things. These are... <clears throat> this is uh, scripture and hymns and and uh, religious training and cognitive behavior therapy, the feeling good book. Well, these habits all work together to build uh, coping and resilient skills that can help people survive and thrive through almost any difficulty. Truly amazing. And thank you for being uh, here today. I have enjoyed chatting with you, and and uh, and I hope you have a wonderful week. Awesome! Thank you, thank you, Christopher, and we'll uh, we'll we'll see you around. See you, bye. -bye.